There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. engine light on take the guesswork out of your check engine light with o'reilly veriscan it's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASC certified master technicians and if you need help we can recommend a shop for you ask for o'reilly veriscan today oh, 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 O'Reilly. auto parts Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 365. And today, I'm joined by Mark Drury to run through a series of hypothetical deer hunting scenarios, ranging from small property habitat improvements to dealing with hunting competition from neighbors all the way to patterning specific bucks during the rut. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, we have got another What Would You Do podcast. This is the last of a series of four that I'm going to start with. Uh, If you haven't listened to the prior three, here's the basic gist. I will be presenting our guest today with a bunch of different scenarios, specific scenarios that I'm going to ask him to, you know, explain what he would do, why he would do it, how he would do it. And the, the hope and the thought and the goal here is that this allows us to learn something new from somebody that we've heard from in the past, but now we get to get a deeper look into how their brain works, how their hunting strategy works with very specific situations. So that's the game plan. We've got Mark Drury on the show. If you've listened to the podcast over the years, you know he's one of the very best out there. He's one of the very best deer hunters out there. He's one of the very best guests we've ever had in the show. He's very analytical. He has a very Uh, deep and thorough thought process behind everything he does, which I just love. I geek out on this kind of stuff with him. So to have him for this type of episode makes me particularly excited. Um, If you haven't heard his past episodes, definitely listen to episode number 63 and episode number 229. Both of those go really deep into understanding how different weather and uh, moon and different factors at time of year factors influence deer movement. They are some of the very best episodes we've ever done, some of the most influential on hunters across the country. Episodes 63 and 229, don't forget those. Um, Once you've listened to those, then come back and listen to this one because I think that will help you better understand the context of what Mark says here today. 
we cover a whole bunch of different types of topics. Uh, like I mentioned at the top, we do spend a little bit of time in the beginning on some habitat improvement stuff, a little bit on, you know, trying to find a new farm, a little bit on what Mark would do if he lost his farms. Uh, then we dive into a bunch of hunting scenarios, kind of starting early season, moving on through. We cover everything from scouting to trail cameras, to dealing with hunting competition, to trying to pattern a specific buck, to dealing with lousy warm weather, and then all sorts of rut-related topics too. Uh, but before we get into this, you know, I just want to to give you a couple suggestions on this one, a couple things to think about, because like I said, this is our fourth of this series. Um, we've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. It seems like people are really enjoying this, what would you do? type format. It's been helpful. So I want to do more in the future, but for now we're going to, we're going to do a four episode run of these and this completes it. So today we've got Mark Drury and he is one of two guys we've had on for this bit that are a little bit more private land focused, a little bit more management hands-on focused. This is Mark Drury and Steve Bartilla. They had that kind of perspective. And then we also heard earlier from John Eberhardt and Dan Infault who have a little bit more of the public land or heavily pressured private land perspective. And I did this on purpose. I wanted two people from these two different situations so that we can have a very full look at things from all parts of the deer hunting world. And as we're going through this last one, I want to make sure you're thinking about that. And I mentioned this often, right? When we listen to all these different people, whether they hunt just like you do or in a totally different place or in a totally different way, don't discount the things they're saying because we can often take little bits and pieces and find ways to apply them to our specific scenario. So when you hear these questions that I'm asking Mark, one thing I would recommend you do, you could even pause the podcast and do this or at least do it quickly in your own mind. When I ask one of these questions, I would recommend you ask that question to yourself too. Think about what you would do or the things you would be thinking about. I think just simply the practice of doing that, the practice of considering a certain scenario and what you would do, that's helpful on its own. Even if you don't have the whole answer, at least it forces you to consider some of these things that who knows, maybe come October, come November, you actually will be faced with a scenario like this. And having at least given it a little bit of thought now here in August or September or whenever you're listening to this, that might help you. And then number two, you're gonna hear Mark Drury's answer that might help you as well. But I think just as important, if not maybe more important than the specific answer you get from Mark or from one of the past three guests that did this, the thought process and reasoning behind those answers, that is just just as important. Really, really try to pay attention to that. So not just exactly what Mark would do, but listen to how he explains his rationale for that. Listen to the different factors that are motivating him to do something. When you listen to Mark, you might hear that he's mostly motivated. Let's say, I'm just hypothetically saying stuff here, but maybe it's he's mostly motivated by what the deer are telling him to do based on scouting and cameras, while maybe a Dan Infault or a John Eberhardt might have been mostly motivated by what other hunters are doing and what the pressure is telling them to do. Uh, those are just random examples, but listen in and try to pick apart the behind the scenes why. Because that's the kind of thing that even if you don't encounter the exact same scenario that we're talking about here with Mark, if you can understand his why, if you can understand how he gets to these answers, you can definitely apply that to your own thinking and to your own situation, regardless of how different it might be from these. So so try to 
try to do that a little bit as we go through this. And maybe go back and listen to those last three if you get some more time and do that too. Ask yourself the same questions and then think about the why. Think about the thought process behind how they answer. If you can do that, I think you're going to get the very most possible out of these what would you do episodes. So that is that's the last thing I want to leave you with here. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mark's Jury, he is the host of a bunch of different shows. He's one of the co-founders of Drury Outdoors. They have the Drury Outdoors DeerCast app now, which is a great tool. You can see their stuff on YouTube, on the Outdoor Channel, all over the place. Uh, they're some of the, you know, the leaders in the outdoor uh, media industry. It's hard to avoid what they got going on out there because it's everywhere. Uh, so hopefully, Mark's someone you know and you're interested to hear from. If that's the case, we should probably just get into it. So I'll just stay here in the front end. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys really enjoy this one. And let's get to my chat with Mark Drury. All right, we are back for another episode with Mr. Mark Drury. Mark, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Man, I love it, Mark. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. It's uh, it's become an annual treat that I look forward to every year, knowing or, or hoping that we can have this chat. Um, so pressure's pressure's on because people have high expectations whenever they see your name on the show. <laughs> <laughs> we got, well, surely we can disappoint them this yeah. year. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, but like I was telling you just before we started recording, for this episode – different than some of our past ones where we've drilled into specific topics. I, I more so want to throw a bunch of different hypothetical scenarios at you and then kind of have you explain what you think you would do or what your thought process would be or what other information you would need to know to make the right decision and, and just kind of see if we can learn through your thought process. Um, so I don't know. I, I found this to be kind of a fun thing. I've been trying this with some folks, and it seems to be interesting and, and a little different. So if you're game to take on the wired to hunt, what would you do gauntlet? Um, I say we just jump into it. I'm happy to do it. You know how analytical I am. We're liable to spend the entire time on the first scenario. So. <laughs> if if we do that. I'll do, my, I'll do my best to answer as many as I can, but okay. I, I get deep in the weeds pretty easily on these dang things. So uh, you uh, fire away because I'm, I'm anxious to see what you're going to ask. All right. Well, I've got stuff that ranges from kind of land management stuff to pure hunting stuff to – very specific scenarios on your farm all the way to what if I took away your farm? Uh, everything from early season to late season, everything in between. So we'll, we'll kind of see what we can get through. But here's the first one, and I kind of dropped a hint. Let's say, God forbid, something happened, and and you, you lost your job, you lost your hunting properties, you lost your leases, funds are tight, uh, you can't get your hands on a new farm or place, but you still want to kill a nice mature, mature buck this year. What would be like your, your gut reaction and your thought process to how to start anew? Would it be public land? Would it be going back to door knocking? Um, if you were in that situation today, it's, it's August, I don't know, 10th or something like that. What would be your next steps if, if everything you had is gone now and you've got to start from square one? I think it would be fun. And I've actually thought about doing this for turkeys, but not for deer. But I think it'd be fun given my current situation, right? Everything else is gone, but I'd still put feelers out there on social media and go, Hey, I'm looking for a place to hunt. Where can we go? You know, that would be one thing I would do. Now, if 
Mark Drury, the personality and the shows and all that didn't exist. And I was just starting over anew and I have no contacts anywhere, then my butt's going to public for sure. Um, I, and that would probably be, uh, that would also mirror efforts to where I'm also knocking on doors. Cause I, I'm a networker and I, I'm a people guy. So I'd probably spend some time in some bars and get to know some people and say, uh, you know, start talking deer and talking the lingo and uh, seeing where I might be able to get some permission. If I didn't get that permission, man, I know some public areas that are just dynamite. I mean, just dynamite there in, in Iowa. Um, so I'd start scouting and probably enjoy the challenge of trying to get on a mature buck on, on uh, a fairly decent sized public area there in Southern Iowa, or perhaps Northern Missouri. Now, early on in your hunting kind of journey, you had to do some of that stuff, right? I mean, I, I know that you didn't just hop out of the womb and have all this great hunting land. <laughs> Did you have any little tricks or any specific things you used to do that helped you get that permission? I, I know you mentioned networking at bars and stuff, but were there any specific ways or examples of things that helped you get over that? You know, it's a tough hump for a lot of people to to get that permission and to talk to new people. Anything from the old days you could bring back up? Yeah, we, we would always go and talk to people, not with the intent of asking, but rather the intent of getting to know them, who they are, what they do, how they feel about it uh, prior to asking. And once we got a feeling that they may be open to it, then we would, would ask the question. So you can kind of get that feeling just by getting to know somebody. And that's you're doing two things. You're accomplishing you know, getting inside their head and learning more about them. And then they're also getting a comfort level with you. So I think you have to first create a comfort level prior to asking for permission. You know, that's the way we always did it. Now I'm going back into the 89 through 95 range. Uh, those were the, the years that we were hunting both public and, and um, either a lease or permission or with an outfitter or something like that. A lot of it was permission, especially there in Southern Iowa. Everything we were doing on our early videos was all permission. Our, our public. Yep. Okay. So let's let's improve your situation just a little bit. Then let's say you managed to hold on to a little bit of of a nest egg. I don't know exactly how much this is, but it's enough money to maybe buy a small small starter farm. And you've got you know your whole state of of Iowa or Missouri. You're, there's a couple states there to pick from, and you've got just enough to get something small. Let's say. 20, 30, 40 acres, somewhere in that range. Could you just describe for me your ideal hypothetical farm if you had this, this just enough money to get something like that and you're going to start all anew and this is going to be that thing that begins your whole process of trying to build from there and try to get on some decent deer hunting. Um, would you be looking to get like that spot that you're going to keep on hunting forever? Or would you be going into this immediately thinking, okay, I'm going to buy this 20, but I'm going to flip it in two years. So you're thinking about that from the get go. What, what's your thought process? And then what's that first farm going to look like in as much detail as you can hypothetically think of? Sure. So I would look for anytime I buy a farm or lease a farm, I'm looking into one that's a long-term play. I never, I never go into a, a situation and go, oh, I'm going to flip this in a year, you know, because if it's not something that I'm willing to hunt the rest of my life, then how would I ever have the ability to flip it to someone and say, you're going to want to hunt this for the rest of your life. 
So that upfront, I'm always looking for that long-term play. And that, that is defined me to me as, especially if it's a small farm, it is, it will be of the utmost importance that it is in an area that's surrounded by great whitetail uh, habitat, if you will. So if I can't provide it on the property, then it has to already exist, right? Because you, you won't have control over what your neighbors are doing. If they manage, all the better. If they don't, a lot of Southern Iowa has incredible whitetail habitat. So I'd be looking at programs like Onyx or any of the mapping programs, looking at all the neighbors. The larger the bordering property owners, the better if you can find that. And then on that piece, I would want to have great access. Um, I'd want to have some seclusion from road frontage so that you don't get bothered by um, passing vehicles and whatnot. I'd want it off the road. Um, I talk to a lot of realtors and they often talk about how difficult it is to sell a piece of property that's at the end of a dead end road or is landlocked or only has access through a mud road. But those are things I like because it minimizes other traffic in and around the area. So I'd want it secluded and I'd want some form of water close or at least the ability to put water on it. And I would want decent cover where I'd have some morning hunting. Uh, but I would most depend on the cover that surrounds it, and then I'd load it with food, man. I mean, at the end of the day, food wins the day for me when it comes to whitetail hunting. Even if I have to sacrifice some morning hunting, I still want to have the ability to lure deer to my property every single day of the season. I do that through food sources and a variety of different food sources. So I'm going to load it with clovers, brassicas, and hopefully at least one destination uh, field of beans or corn and uh, probably take advantage of bedding and cover on neighbors. So I would probably lean on the side of the ability to plant food, provided that there was cover surrounding it. How, how much food do you think you need, let's say on like a percentage basis of the property to to make a real significant impact if we're in like farm country, where you've got neighboring farms have got 100 acre bean fields and everything like that, but you only have a 40 acre property, you know, is an acre, two acres going to make a di enough difference in your mind? Um, or do you feel like you really need to have something significant to really change things? It, it really depends on the makeup of the farm. If you've got, uh, say, a travel corridor that's leading from big cover out to um, tillable, big tillable, then you can have some staging plots that are phenomenal. Uh, if, however, you don't have that and you, you want to create cover, then you want more opportunity to plant perhaps corn or sorghum or something like that. So it really would depend on the makeup of that farm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Something you mentioned a second ago um, about the, the neighborhood kind of triggered something that I often debate myself, which is would you rather have a bunch of neighbors that are – great managers with similar goals as you they're passing on young bucks but they're also really good hunters so there's there's serious competition to kill the big buck you're after too or do you want neighbors who are not such great managers they might shoot younger bucks but they're lousy hunters like you don't need to worry about them getting the big one uh i i have scenarios that are uh both of those and we 
we uh, we do quite well in both scenarios, so either would be great. Uh, <laughs> either of those scenarios would work, provided that the habitat's there. It goes back to my initial answer to the question, like, you got to have an overall deer population in the area that's sustainable and healthy and good, and whether the neighboring uh, um, landowners hunt and aren't good at hunting, to your term, or whether they all manage, I don't think it matters as long as your dirt is in, in the right little neighborhood. I mean, it, it's, you're only as good as your spot. And if you've got a little spot, it needs to be a really, really good spot. Yeah. Do you, so it sounds like the answer is no, but do you ever change your specific habitat improvements or hunting strategy based off of the skill level or strategies that you know your neighbors are going to use? Does that ever influence what you do? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I can't think of an exact example, but cause I don't want to give away, let a neighbor know. What I'm <laughs> yeah. <thinking. laughs> yeah. Gotta be careful here. You gotta be very careful, <laughs> but absolutely. I change per farm, uh, per neighbor, you know, and more specifically, uh, because, I, and I keep talking about, you know, different farms and, and I've gotten to the point where I have my main farm there in Iowa. And then I, I have a few satellites around, same in Missouri. Um, and there are certain farms that I know I need to get in there and get serious about it earlier in the season because, uh, neighbor X is probably going to be here during this part of the season, mm-hmm. you know, or, Great example, Missouri. I have a I have a farm that borders um, a neighbor that really only comes during rifle season, and but they come gangbusters multiples, and my piece is not very good once rifle season starts, and it stays poor all the way through the end of the season. So, in terms of daylight activity, so I I make sure that I I do my do my due diligence from a camera survey standpoint and then, you know, really hunt it wisely as often as I can prior to their arrival. Uh, I plant it accordingly because I'm planting stuff that's going to be appealing during the early part of the season. And I'm not so much worried about the latter part of the season. So in a farm like that, that's going to go, you know, dark anyway, in mid November, for the most part, I'm going to rely heavily on either clover, clover or radishes. However, I have other farms that really don't get good till the late season. So therefore not going to plant clover and radishes there. I'm going to plant, you know, soybeans or corn because I know that it's a timing issue. So you can plant according to the time of the year that you're going to hunt and you can learn when it's best based on your neighbor's activity and just, you know, hunt around that. Oh, interesting. Now, okay. What about the really good hunter scenario where you've got, several neighbors that are primo like they they're they really know what they're doing they also are improving their properties in certain ways that you know are smart in that situation would you and let's say there's a target buck that you're all after there's this there's this one buck that obviously everyone is is interested in would you hunt more aggressively because you know that every day that passes, there's a better chance that the other guys are going to get him? Or would you hunt more conservatively because you just don't want to bump him onto the neighbors where he's got a chance of getting killed? What's, what's, what would you do or what's your thought process on balancing that? I'm conservative in, in all situations. Um, I live by the trail camera surveys and, and the results that I'm getting. So 
you know, I'm very calculated in when I will go in and hunt a particular buck. So regardless of the situation around me, I'm going to be very, very conservative on my approach. And I'm, I'm disciplined to the point that even if I had a small piece of property and, you know, I'm not going to be hunting that property very often at all, most likely. I'm going to wait till there's a good buck there and then go in and go after him and not go during the bad times. You know, like I'd be watching deer cast and avoiding the bad days. Uh, I'd be watching my trail cameras, whether they're cellular or, or ones that I pulled a card off of. And, you know, I'm going to go when, when the opportunity is greatest to kill a deer as opposed to worrying about the neighbors. I think when you get into that scenario and you start worrying about everybody else, you're really hurting yourself. You can only do uh, what you can do. And uh, one thing's for sure in that scenario, the first thing I'm going to do when somebody else kills a deer is be the first guy to text them and congratulate them, yeah. you know, cause you want that same feeling afforded to you if you're the one that kills the deer. So if you're in a neighborhood of management, then everybody should be on the same page and just as happy for the neighbor to kill it as yourself, because in due time, everybody, everybody ends up winning in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, w- one more question within this kind of general scenario. We're on this small property. I'm going to give you a little more details now about the property because it's not going to be quite what you wanted. Instead, you got stuck with a property that's mostly kind of open farm fields um, and a few fingers of cover that extend out out of a bigger chunk of timber and cover that's on the neighbors. Most of the bedding you come to find is on your neighbors. What would you, what are some of the things you would try to do in this kind of scenario to get a mature buck to spend more daylight hours on your place when your cover minimal, um, it's, it's open fields. So you can't all of a sudden magically have a huge forest there or a bunch of really thick cover and unless you plant certain things. And, uh, it's, it's mostly maybe an attraction game trying to pull them off the neighbors. What's your thought process and, and what would you do in the short term versus the long term? Well, short term, I'm going to plant as much food on it as I possibly can. Uh, say you come across this property and right now, you know, late summer, and then I'm going to plant it heavily to brassicas in as many good places as I can. It, with the preparation that I'm also preparing soil for the following spring, when I'm going to transfer every single acre of that farm to the tallest, nastiest switchgrass and, and big blue and Indian grass that I can find and side oats gamma. So eventually the long play is to transfer every open acre into warm season grasses. Uh, but in the short term, I would just load it with food and be very careful when I approached it. Um, you know, I, I think it's as long as you've got the cover to one side or, or two sides and you could add food, you can still expect some success because uh, deer are only going to stay in the cover for so long. Now, if there's enough pressure around that they're just not coming there during daylight, then you know that the following year you've got to add that cover regardless of, of cost, really. Otherwise, you're, you're going to be spinning your reels for years and years and years to come. There's certain farms that deer will walk on during daylight and others that they won't, and you have to get it to where they're comfortable being there during daylight hours. Yeah. Is there anything that you would do in that kind of scenario when you mention you want to add a lot of food out there, right? But when I hear a lot of food – one of the first things that I start worrying about is 
or at least that I worry about my own personal life is how big of a food source I plant. And my worries of a mature buck probably doesn't want to walk out into a great big wide open field around here. He's going to be more likely to be comfortable in a small area versus big and wide open. So then I, I find myself kind of uh, decreasing the size of my food plots to try to keep them safe from like a a, a mature bucks perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts on the sizes? Would you do a bunch of little ones because of that? Or are you not worried about that? And you would be okay putting the big ones in. I, I have no trouble putting big ones in provided that the land allows it so often on small farms, you just don't have the correct ridge top or the correct bottom field in order to put a large plot on. So more often than not, I find that you know, because I, I just hate erosion. So I have a tendency to only plant the A-grade soils up on tops of ridges or, or in the bottom. So that's that's what I was talking about. Like I'd put as much on it as the land would allow. And I'd also be prepping those side hills to plant switch grasses and, and tall grasses the following spring. Okay. I love the uh, the switch grass thing. That's definitely something that I've I've always dreamed of doing if I ever owned a farm myself. And and actually this farm we're working on for our back 40 project, I did that, planted a bunch of our old fields with switchgrass this spring, frost seeded them. So I'm excited to see what kind of impact that has. Are they are they coming on? And so often it's so hard to get switchgrass to establish in year one. Well, I don't know because I actually haven't gone back to the farm since I left for my Western trip two months ago. So I've switched, I, I, did see in May, just before I left, that they were germinating. I was seeing stuff popping out, but I don't know how it looks now. So I'll tell you in a day or two exactly what it looks like. I could just about tell you it's full of weeds. Uh, that much I, I can tell you. Because switchgrass is slow growers. Like, they have to grow like a foot root before they start going up. So they got to go down before they can go up. Yep. And uh, you got to mow them, mow them, mow them, mow them until it almost makes you sick the first year or two. But you have to do that in order to end up with a good stand and, and at the end of the end of the two or three years period. Yeah, it's a process, huh? It is a process because those roots got to bury, man. They have to in order to support that grass. Fingers crossed in the long run. Yeah, the other thing you can do is burn it. Even right now, you can burn it in August and it's going to look like horrible, but it will help them long-term. Switchgrass is a long-term play. It's It's not an immediate gratification thing. It takes a while. Yeah. Well, that's a good reminder. I'm going to feel slightly less bad when I go see it now. <laughs> yeah, don't feel bad. Just mow it or burn it and it uh, they'll come on. They're they're still there. Uh but you you got to treat them right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Let's let's change what we're talking about here a little bit, shift away from more of the habitat stuff to hunting stuff. Um Okay. I'm thinking this is something a lot of people are probably going to be working through maybe over the coming weeks as we're leading into hunting season. Let's say you've got your summer trail cameras out there, you pull it, and you get this giant buck, biggest buck ever, maybe, on your cameras. And you look at this deer and you realize, okay, I've got several, this is a buck that I have several years of history with. I recognize him. He made a huge jump. Uh, You're very, very excited. Can you walk me through specifically how you would go about analyzing past pictures and observations to develop that game plan? Um, I'm wondering if you would, uh, we, we've talked about this in the past in different little pieces and parts, but I'd like to hear the whole thought process. And then secondly, I'd like to hear specifically how you would approach the dates of daylight activity from last year, let's say. And if you had a daylight movement on October 15th last year, 
what would you do on October 15th this year? Um, so sorry, that's a long-winded several-part question, but but that's what I'm curious to hear about. Absolutely. And, and believe it or not, I just did this yesterday on the flight from Salt Lake City to, to St. Louis. Um, exactly what you're talking about. We have trail pictures this summer of a, a really, really, really big deer. Like you know, approaching that bucktober caliber, which wow. was a, a, a giant for me. Yeah. And this is the first deer that I've seen that's been in that frame. He doesn't have the multi-times like that. This one's a clean 10, but boy, is he wear it well. I mean, he's a mega giant. So it's one of the reasons I'm so anal about trail photos each and every year of every rack buck I get. And I think sometimes as you talk to guys, it, it really mystifies me how many people don't keep files of their deer pictures from season to season. And I, I keep every rack buck on every camera and I'm talking across Texas, Iowa, Missouri, you know, over a hundred, hundred cameras. So it's, it's probably 2 million plus photos a year that we look at. And I keep them all in files based on location because you get in a situation now where this deer has blown up and I've gone back three years and accumulated every single photo into a file for this year with his name on it. And I, I moved them all forward into my 2020 within, within Buckview, which is the, the file system I use from Reconyx. And in answer to your question, I'm going to look through those files probably a hundred times this season and try to pick out something from direction of travel to, you know, where he might be betting, you know, because I had this deer on, let me think here, four different camera locations across the farm, across three years, and some of them were repetitive from year to year and some weren't. So I'm going back now and making notes as to what crop rotation was in the area surrounding, not only right where I'm getting in, but also in the uh, surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. I'm also trying to remember when there were cattle next door and when there weren't. And I make notes to that each and every year because I think that does affect deer movement. And I'm going to just break him down, you know, like figure out, okay, if he was going here on the morning of October the 13th and he's heading here, where do you think he bedded or where do I think he bedded? And then I'll start creating maps that will eventually be one map that shows every single movement I have of that buck. And also an interpretation of what I think he was doing and where he was betting. Because if I can figure out where he's betting, then I can in interpret where I think he might go feed that evening and actually catch him during daylight hours. Or I might be able to get on the outskirts of a bedroom that he's using habitually and catch him of a morning coming back. So it's, it's really all about bed and food. And I'm trying to figure out where he's betting at certain times of the year and where he's feeding at certain times of the year. And did that change based on A, the cattle rotation next door, and B, the crop rotation in the general area. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? 
It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. How much do you discount the data from last year as compared to two years ago? because of a different crop in the rotation. So to say it a different way, if if two years ago was corn, last year was beans, this year's corn, and now I might normally think, okay, what he did last year as a five-year-old or a four-year-old is probably a little bit more valuable than what he did the year prior as a three-year-old, but maybe not if it's a different crop. How, how, how does that influence things? I know it influences things, but how significantly in your mind? I, I think it does influence it because it just depends whether this deer, you know, I've seen deer have preferences and tastes that differ, if that makes sense, believe it or not. I've seen deer that call them corn hogs down in Texas. Well, you see the same thing up here. I think they have a sweet tooth. They love those carbs. And I've seen other deer that really don't come to a cut cornfield that often or even a corn pile when you put them out in the summer to get pictures and stuff. So it, it can be a little bit deer dependent. Um, this particular deer seems to like corn um, as it pertains to that rotation when it was cut corn. I mean, that's when I was getting him the most, certainly when he was, when he was three. So you have to take that. And it's a great point that you make. You have to take that into consideration as well. You have to interpret what you've experienced with three-year-olds in the past and their movement during daylight activity mm-hmm. versus a five-year-old this year. <coughs> Excuse me. Can I expect that same daylight activity during that exact same phase? And the answer to that is probably not as much. Right. Might expect some, but probably not as much. Those three-year-olds, they walk, man. They get out and they travel and they go. So it's going to be very, very important that I figure out exactly where he was betting at certain times of the year, as opposed to depending on a daylight flyby, right, when he was three. You, you really have to figure out where he's betting and, and get right next to that bed. That's what it all comes down to. Not get in it, but next to it. Now, Similar question, but how much do you discount nighttime pictures? Because as I've been trying to, I'm doing something very similar with a buck right now. I'm in my third year with him. And to try to make it more manageable, I've really 
focused my deep analysis on just daylight pictures or observations. So I've got my spreadsheet that lists every one of those daylight pictures or sightings and then all the data. Um, but am I missing I'm sure I'm missing something. It's just a matter of how much time can I afford to to put to it. But when it comes to those nighttime picks, am I missing the boat, not trying to derive some information from them too? Or is it okay because that nighttime stuff could be, you know, obviously these deer could be bedded a long ways away and still show up in my cameras at night, um, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts there? I I think they're worth a lot personally. So I look at the, uh, nighttime photo. I look at the time of the photo and then I go backwards to whatever year it was and find out what the moon phase was the day of that photo. So just because he's moving during night, if that occurred during dark of the moon, probably isn't very surprising. And likewise, if I look at my daylight photos and see how that correlates to the full moon and see whether it's a morning photo or an evening photo, is he following the trends that I see so often with so many deer in that as you approach that full moon, as it's rising in the afternoon, is he moving a little bit more during daylight of an afternoon? Or right after that full moon, is he moving during daylight right after it of a morning? So I, I look at every photo, morning or day, and go back to the moon phase and then look at where he's at. And I'm, all I'm trying to do is figure out where that deer's bedding when he is walking past this camera on this portion of the farm. You know, is he heading to bed? Is he coming out of bed at this time? Uh, you know, because I have daylight photos of him. So sometimes camera, you know, a camera pictures a moment in time. Well, that's just a moment. You don't know what he did the other, you know, the rest of the day, so I'm st- but he's still on your farm, right? That means he's there. And a lot of these deer just don't travel all that far. So, uh, you know, I think every photo is worth a lot. And I, I almost look at them as I ignore daylight versus versus daytime, if that makes sense, because I know he was there that day. Um, just because he walked by it at, you know, 4.30 a.m. doesn't mean he didn't bed down 30 seconds later and then and then permanently bed and walk during daylight, you know, right at daybreak and going up to this bed that I think he's bedding in, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, so nighttime photos, I think, are still very valuable, you know, because say you get one at 9 p.m., you know, just after dark or 8 p.m., you know, during the season, it might be 7 p.m. and it's dark. Well, he was close, right? He might have been feeding for an hour and then walked by your camera. So camera surveys or camera on, cameras only give you a moment in time, but he's still there. If you got a picture of a mature deer, that's a huge deal, man. He's walking on your property. So I, I don't, I, I like both nighttime and daytime photos when you're, when you're getting both that just means that's where your camera was when he walked by that particular day. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, now, on the daylight note, though, I know that in the past we've talked about this kind of annual pattern that we can often see where bucks will do something relatively similar from year to year tied to certain parts of the year. Um, so how specifically are you – what am I trying to say here? Where we are, you've been following this for years and years now. How closely or how aggressively will you take a crack at a buck like that now? If, for example, this buck that you've rediscovered, if it does show, if we do go back and look at pictures from last year and he daylighted, he was in daylight on one of your food plots on October 15th. Um, 
and then October 25th. How seriously are you about trying to get in there and say he was daylight on this date last year? I'm going to be in there. Does it have to be the same exact conditions? Does it have to be backed up by additional new intel from this year? Uh, what do you, how, how much emphasis yeah, are you yeah, putting in that? I'm, are you looking at my photos, first of all, because you just about hit his two daylight ranges? Mark, I really do my research for these podcasts. <laughs> you do, man. I'm telling you. He was actually daylighting 13th through the 16th when he was three and four, and then he daylighted again um, at you know, October the – was it the 20 – 29th through November 4th when he was three and four. And then he daylighted again, November like 14th, 15th, two years in a row. So this deer has been pretty predictable in terms of that. So you bet you, I'm going to absolutely zone in on that. And I'm going to correlate and cross-reference all of my assumptions based on where I think he's betting from the stuff I was painting out earlier, and then try to make a good approach and get in there and we're, we're planting with this in mind right now, right? You know, like we're planting green fields to try to attract this deer sometime in October. And then of course the mid November was, was rut activity. He's just walking when I got him there, but both of the October daylights that I was getting, he was heading to or from a food source. So I'm, I'm planting accordingly with my radishes right now for that deer. Now, what if, what if the conditions that you get when we arrive to that time period this year are bad what if they're off they're very different from what they were last year and the year prior and they're not great you know just given the fact that it's warm temperatures or funky wind or something do you brush that aside and still go because of the previous year's intel or do you say okay then no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hunt this three-day window because of that if my access is buttoned down and i can get in and out without anything letting without anything knowing I'm coming and going, I'll still hunt it. Um, but my access isn't that way in this particular instance. So therefore I will, I will hold off rather than, than risk it. If, unless it's, I mean, unless it's borderline, but if it's terrible, terrible weather, 20 degrees above, you know, normal and, you know, the pressure sucks, I'm just not going to burn a day on a, on a mature deer of this caliber. Um, but once it's, you know, once you get into the rut, that's a different answer. You know, once you get into the rut and there's rut activity going with it, that's a different answer. October food activity, you got to have the weather on your side to kill one. During the rut, you, the, the weather's important, but it's not as important because you've got other variables in there that are influencing movement. Okay. All right. So you're building this this kind of internal map. Do you, do you actually make a physical map or is it just kind of in your head? It's in my head. Okay. So you've got this internal map in your head. You've you've analyzed all these photos. You've planted things specifically for specific bucks in certain spots. It's the night before opening day. And I don't know which state this is. You know, you can tell us. Or you, Iowa. You don't need to sh- okay, so it's Iowa. It's October or September 30th or whatever it is, the day before October 1st now. Um, what do you do the night before opening day this year? Are you spending it with your wife and your family? Are you glassing? Uh, what's the best way to spend that last evening before the opener? Well, I'll probably be in Missouri because it's open. So I'll be hunting down there. <laughs> if I'm not like, super all tagged out, I'll, I'll be at uh, the Mexican restaurant in Osceola having a margarita with salt on it. <laughs> <Get ready> for, <laughs> okay. 
honest answer. I'll be getting ready for a, a very long Iowa season ahead and, and having a, having a good time. And it's, it's one of those joyous occasions the the night before Iowa season, everybody's in a good mood. We cannot wait to start hunting these bucks that, you know, the plans in place, the food plots are up hopefully and growing and the stands are all ready to go. And now it's just about going out there and, you know, the, we've planned the execution. Now we got to go execute the plans. Is the answer any different on September 14th in Missouri? No, not really. We're we're anxious for both of them to start. Although often September 14th in Missouri is tempered by really, really warm temperatures. The last few years, it's just been miserable. The first week of the Missouri season, Taylor and I were just talking about that this weekend in Utah. She was like, man, I'm limited on, on when I'm going to come in because they're in the middle of a new house build, you know? And I said, well, I would air towards the latter part of September rather than the, the first few first few days of the season because you've got a rising moon in late September and traditionally the temperatures are cooling off somewhat. So that first week of the Missouri season can be tricky. Beans are still green. Temperatures are warm. This year we don't have a rising moon yet. So I I look very forward to the last seven days of September this year. Okay. Now, now my, the, the next scenario I was going to throw at you it's it's a slight variation on on what we talked about with uh, daylight past activity from past years, and it's it's directly related to what you just mentioned, which is those warm early season temperatures. So let's say leading into opening day, we'll say it's leading into opening day in Missouri, you've been getting daylight trail camera pictures of a mature buck that you want to target. Maybe it's not the two days prior, but let's say over the over the ten days prior, you've got three four daylight sightings of him coming out to a spot you could hunt. That's pretty exciting stuff. I would be feeling good about my opening day sit. But when you look at your weather conditions, you've got lousy, warm, hot days on those first three days. So in my head, I'd be thinking, man, that first night of the season is such a great opportunity because there hasn't been prior hunting pressure. And I know that's going to change each day afterwards, but it's lousy conditions. Would you go in there and hunt opening day no matter what because of that? Or would you still, as you mentioned, wait to have the right weather, be conservative, and wait till three days into the season, disregarding hunting pressure impacts from other people? I'd wait. Yep, I'm always a waiter. I mean, only because through history, I've seen the nights that they'll move during early season, and I've seen the nights they won't, and they, they just don't move nearly as well. Or, worst case scenario, they finally come out, it's too late. Then you got to get out of there, right? And he, he walked onto the field at 100 yards. He's not within bow range, and he's out there feeding, and then you've got to get out of there, right, because he came out at the last five minutes of life. I hate that scenario. I want to get in there where I have enough time to let that deer get onto the field, feed for a little bit, and then walk past because oftentimes my, my setups aren't exactly right where they walk out, and it requires them to get full where they come out and then walk past because I'm so crazy about my access in and out, so I'm often not close enough, but they have to do some walking. And you'll find that those big bucks, especially early in the season, as soon as they hit that plot, they're going to they're gonna feed for 15, 20, 30 minutes before they'll make a move. So um, I, I want that weather on my side, the weather and the moon. What, what, what about that exact scenario then, where you ended up going in there and it was a little bit too late of movement because it was a little warm. Maybe it was me. And uh, I somehow convinced you with my over-eagerness to go in there anyways. And you listened to me foolishly, and you did it. And you went in, and you're sitting there, and that buck comes out right towards the end of the night. But it's it's early season, so 
you know, at least where I'm hunting in Michigan, I don't like to get aggressive with calling too early, but here he is, the buck I want. He's 100 yards away or 90 yards away or something. I've got a few minutes left. Do you just let it slide and watch him walk away because you just know it's going to be too much to ask for him to come all that way over? Or will you try to get aggressive in that last five minutes and, and do some calling, something to try to make something happen on nothing? No, I, I wouldn't call. Um, I'd watch him and try to learn something from it. And then I'd sit there a very long time in the dark before I left. So, you know, I'm just, I just hate that scenario. But when it happens, my butt's parked there for at least an hour after dark before I'll attempt getting down and I'll continue to glass him. Now, if he walks off the field, I'll get down quick and scurry out of there. But if he's still on that field, which oftentimes they do, they come out and they stand there and feed and don't move very far, or they'll come and spar with other bucks, or they'll just be feeding, or I've had them bed down. I mean, it's just a nightmare. Um, it, worst case scenario, I will owl hoot or uh, coyote howl in order to try and, and get some of the deer off the field. And uh, that that has worked pretty good, actually. Once it's dark and you clear the field, it's almost as if, it really didn't bother them because they don't clear very far. But if you clear them while it's still any light in the sky at all, they seem to clear farther and harder and it affects them a little bit more. But once you have the cover of darkness, do you ever notice how much more calm they are? Even when you bump yeah. one on the way into the stand in the yeah. pre-dawn, they're just a lot more calm when they're under the cover of darkness. So I wait for complete cover of darkness. And if I have to clear myself, I'm going to owl hoot or, uh, or potentially, you know, coyote howl at them. What about, so you, you hoot or you howl and you spook some of them off, but like you mentioned, you know they're not gone, gone. They're somewhere within earshot probably, or at least a lot of them are. Do you try to sneak out of the standstill or do you just like rip the Band-Aid off and just say, I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. I'm going to make a ruckus because, you know, I'm just going to just get out of here. What approach no, do you I take? Sneak. sneak. I sneak. I sneak. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm, I just, even when I'm tracking or, you know, even on heroes and stuff, when we're sitting there with the deer, I, I want out of there as, as much as I, I just hate being in their world and letting them pattern me. So I'm, I'm going to sneak out and try not to affect them. Okay. Now this is another scenario, totally different part of the year, but imagine it's November. We're heading in for a morning hunt. It's November 4th and you've got one of those super duper quiet, perfectly still, very crunchy, frosty mornings. I know you know those days where every step you take seemingly, you know, reverberates two miles out in every direction. And like every step just makes me just cringe with how much noise I'm making. In that situation, I often debate the same thing. Do I still, do I try to sneak and take like an hour to get there? Or do I just make a ruckus getting there, but it only takes me five minutes. And then I've got 55 minutes that no deer is going to hear me at all. What would you do? I go slow and quiet, but I will go a little bit earlier on those days because frost is going to bet them hard. And if I can get by those deer, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to affect deer because they're going to hear you, right? You go as slow as you can, you go as early as you can, and you get in there and you let everything settle down. Because those frosty mornings, even if you almost walk into one and bump them and they, and they run, they don't go very far. I mean, it puts them into a very lethargic uh, mood on those heavy frosty mornings. So I give myself plenty of time to go slow. But I also know in the back of my head, if I do bump one, they're probably not going to go very far because they're pretty lethargic until that 
that sun comes up and burns a lot of that frost off. Those are those days where you got to expect that movement to be delayed by at least hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 30 minutes. It's, it's well into the day oftentimes before that big move happens. Hmm. Let's stick a little bit with the weather thing. I know we've beaten this horse to death, maybe over past episodes, but um, I want to just get a little bit more detail on the execution of, of how you use weather and moon factors. You guys have done a great job of talking about this in your DeerCast app and providing that tool to people. Um, but let's say now we're into October. It's mid-October, October 14th, and a big cold front is rolling through. So it's kind of that mid-October, quote-unquote, lull of sorts. But you have this great front, and it's probably the first big front of the year. It's going to drop temperatures 20 degrees from the prior highs. It's hitting overnight. So your first, like, daylight cold temperature is going to happen that morning, that coming morning. And then it's going to stay cool for about three days, let's say. Walk me through exactly how you would think about hunting that period. Let's say from the day prior to the front hitting to the, the three cool days afterwards. Um, and specifically, I mean, like, what quality of stands are you hunting at what point during that four-day period? What are some of the things you're thinking about? Um, would you hunt it differently because it's mid-October than you would in late October? Or does the first cold front of October mean big things no matter what? It means It means big things. However, it's hitting in the dead middle of the month. And if you take this year scenario, you're also dark of the moon. So you've got two strikes against you right out of the, right out of the bat, man. It's, it's mid-October, which is the lull. I mean, we're all in the right mood. They're not quite there yet. Um, and it's dark of the moon, which I, I really just don't have nearly as much success on dark of the moon as I do in and around the full. But if you've got a cold front, we had a chapter in our book, Hunting Giant Whitetail's called A Cold October Wind. And you can't ever miss that first, first major cold in October. It can be magical, even during the lull, even on the dark of a moon. You may not see the activity that you want to see because it is dark of the moon, but that first 30 to 45 minutes and the last 30 are still going to be quite good. So the night before the front hits, I'm going to be on a green food source on an animal that I've patterned or have pictures of in the hopes of seeing him ahead of the front. The first morning of it, I'm going to be in a stand somewhere on a hardwood ridge that's probably got some acorns dropping or certainly on next to a bedroom. And then I'm going to hunt every evening in the front, and I won't hunt any more mornings, most likely. Uh, that first north wind morning is very, very important, and they're going to move on that morning. The subsequent ones, eh, not as much. Mid-October, probably a little afraid of bumping some deer around. So I'm going to use the, the cover of the afternoon bed to get into the food source that I'm hunting that deer on. And I'm not going to expect much activity until the last light because of that dark of the moon. And I won't be disappointed because I'm not seeing deer. It's, it's amazing. Even those major cold fronts on dark of the moon during the October lull, they can be pretty frustrating. Those big bucks still may not move during daylight. It's, uh, it's amazing. Even with the weather, that moon has, has some mighty powerful influence over deer in the middle of October. So given that, moon impact you've got the great weather but the questionable moon and the questionable time of year you're telling you're, you're saying it's gonna be pretty damn good but you know there's a little bit of negativity here 
does this demand an A grade stand site, or are you thinking eh, I'm not going to go to my very best greenfield for that night? I might this might be B B plus type spots. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I'll probably because the front's so good. I'll probably still go try it, and okay. if it doesn't produce that first day or first night, then then I'm going to pivot to B. You know, those cold fronts, you just never know when you have one bedded within a hundred yards of where you're sitting. You know, and maybe you've got a picture, maybe you've got a cell camera that that leads you to a certain spot, or maybe you've got history with a big buck that leads you to a certain spot. I'm still going to try it. Okay, I, I, I like I like that. I like that. Um, it's uh, that same time period. Let's say it's October 14th, um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of wiggle room. It could be somewhere between October 14th and October 20. Fourth, let's say we're gonna give you that ten day window somewhere within that area. You're out there hunting. Maybe that front came through, and you're out there in one of these good spots, and you see a doe getting chased hard. And there's several bucks. Um, maybe one of them's mature or on the edge of mature. Maybe there's like a three, four year old type buck running around, and, and then a bunch of young deer, and they're, they're chasing this doe down like crazy. And you would seemingly think by seeing this, like, okay, that's probably or it's possibly a doe that's coming to heat early. Um, how would you respond to that? Would you stick with just your normal mid-October hunting strategy, or would you shift for a couple days into, uh, okay, we've got like a rut type situation for a couple days here? Uh, what would you do? What's your thought process with that happening? Well, it's a very realistic scenario because every year in October, like 17th, 18th, man, there's always some giants that get shot. And to me, it's always that those first really big alpha does, those big old gals, I think some of those start putting off some estrus signals or perhaps full heat, full on heat in the month of October. And you see the slight little flurry every year. Those are those mornings, especially if they're accompanied with a cold front that you could probably get out and have some success with some light calling, some light sparring, hunting uh, an acorn flat or possibly a bedroom of a morning as opposed to just an afternoon approach during the month of October, which historically I'm more afternoons, you know, 90% of my hunts in October are in the afternoons. I'll preserve a morning hunt for the first, you know, cold north wind. But if I start to see that flurry that you're describing, I'm probably going to try and take advantage of that by getting in closer to where they either came from or where they're going or where I assume that doe's bedding or, or, or feeding, whether it be a morning hunt or an evening hunt. So I'm going to get pretty aggressive because it's a short window. It doesn't last long. And sometimes you can catch some bucks really with their eyes rolled back in and around that first little flurry of estrus. And I've, I've had decent luck calling bucks during this period as well, but I, I do more of a sparring type of sound than I do an all out fight type of sound. If that makes sense. I try to, to make the sound similar to what they would be doing during that time of the year. How long is that time window that you think you have to, to approach? Is that a day? Is it two days? What is that? A couple days, a couple days. 17, 18, right in there is generally the best two in October for, for that crazy flurry. Some years you see it, some years you don't. I think it's just a matter of whether you're lucky enough to have, to have been close to one of those, those older matriarchal does and, and actually see it happen. Most years you don't see it, but I, I do think it occurs. Watch, there's always some giant shot all across the country those few days in October. Yeah. If, if let's say we get a little bit later, we're that last 10 days or so of the month, 
we're kind of working our way through the season here and it's it's October 20th to 27th, 28th, 29th, somewhere in that. And you're out there getting after it and you see a buck do something out of range of your your tree stand or your blind two days in a couple day window. Let's say over three hunts, you happen to hunt within sight of the same area. Maybe you weren't in the same stand both times, but you could see this same fallow field off in the distance and a buck move through there two out of three days. But you don't have a tree stand over there. You don't have a blind over there. And it's a relatively intrusive spot to get to. It's right in the edge of a bedding area, let's say. Um, Historically, it seems like you're pretty conservative with your stands. You tend to have a lot of them up preseason. In that case, after seeing two moves in three days like that, would you go in there and set a new stand midday on October 25th or something? Uh, or what What would you do? I would. If, if I thought it was approachable with the right wind and the right windy conditions to do it without, without blowing him out of there, say you know where he went to bed and you think, oh, he could come back out this evening and go right to that same spot, absolutely I'll go in there and hang and hunt. You betcha. You. If, it's, if, it's, if you've got the right conditions to do so. Windy days, middle of the day, are ideal times, provided your wind's blowing to a safe direction. You have the luxury of the high winds really hampering their uh, ability to hear you. So if the conditions are right, I'll go do it. If it's a dead calm one, no, I'm not doing it, you know, because they're, they're going to hear you trying to do it, I, I would assume. Unless you're really, really stealthy and you can get it up without making a, a single peeper but i'm i'm too clumsy for that so uh those those calm days i'm i'm generally holding holding off have you ever done or thought about the old farmer trick where you want to do something like that put a stand up so you go in there as if it's just like a farm day kind of thing roll in there with a big trailer and make a bunch of noise and run the chainsaw or whatever it is but you're putting up a, a blind or a tree stand and, and the hope being that the deer are used to this kind of obvious activity around harvest season and, and they're not bothered by that. Is that something you've ever kind of used? Absolutely. We do it off of tractors. You know, like if there's a camera I want to check, I'll go check it off the tractor. Or sometimes I'll wait till the middle of the night to go check stuff off the tractor. And it, they, it doesn't bother them hardly at all. So, yes, it's a great point. Uh, but I, I don't make extra noise trying to act like I don't care. I just simply use the noise of a tractor to cover it. Uh, uh, you just raised the question. Like, uh, when it comes to checking trail cameras, and you could go into a spot and check them on a tractor or in your truck, let's say you've got some field edge cameras, Is it? would you say it's better and less intrusive to drive your vehicle in and make that check in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night? middle of the night interesting for sure yeah there is a calmness but it depends exactly where it's at if it's on a food source you know that you can get to during the middle of the day and have zero zero point zero percent chance of a deer seeing or hearing you or smelling you then i'll, I'll do that uh which I, I often put my cameras in those locations right i put them in areas where i can get in and get out of, of, of it without bothering deer but if it's one that i just have to get to and i don't want to bother anything man, you wait till the cover of darkness, drive that tractor in there real slow and check it. And you're not going to affect a thing. In my opinion, they just, you know, you can, I've driven right past big bucks at night and they'll walk 30, 40 yards and they go back to doing whatever they're doing. These tractors just do not bother them that much. It's, it's pretty amazing, especially during the middle of the night. And, and would you say that would still be the truth, even if it's like a, a food source that you know, there's going to be a bunch of deer on. Are you okay with clearing a field like that, given the vehicle? 
Well, he, you know, I wouldn't want to. Um, that's why I say it. If it's a food source and I know I can get in and out of the food source during the middle of the day, I would opt for that. If okay. it was cover and I had to go check it, you know, middle of the night, they're probably not in there anyway. They're probably out on the food source. So, um, you know, so I guess in answer to your question, food source, I'm tr- probably checking middle of the day. Betting, I'm probably checking more at night. It's okay. whenever I feel like they're not there. And do you feel like the type of vehicle makes a difference? Like is a tractor a better option than a pickup truck or a UTV or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I just haven't seen them react much to a tractor hardly at all. I mean, they, they really, for whatever reason, that, that sound of that diesel, just almost like a sleep machine for them. It just doesn't affect them that bad. And I think they've grown up around farmers and, and, but I'm hunting in farm country, right? Northern Missouri, Southern Iowa. And, Tractors just don't pose much of a threat to them. I guess uh, I guess I need to just pony up and buy myself a tractor one of these years then. <laughs> I need a good trail camera checking <laughs> tool. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, talk to, talk to a combiner. They see more giant bucks than anybody, yeah. you know, during the harvest part of the season. I mean, they, they can see the same buck on every round in some of those fields. It's amazing how those, those deer just don't get bothered by combines or, or tractors. Speaking of that. In a, in a situation where you're hunting the edge of or very near to a field that's getting harvested, are you, in, in the case where your shots would be, you know, to the edge of that field, would you stay hunting a spot like that? Let's say you went in in the afternoon and then for the last couple hours of, of the day, all of a sudden here comes the farmer. He's going to be combining the standing cornfield right next to you. Would you stick it out because those deer are relatively used to those combines coming through or, you know, would you say, well, yeah, they're used to it, but they're not so used to it that they're going to let it go driving by and still stand 10 yards out in this cut cornfield and let me shoot them. Well, I have stuck it out in many occasions. And some of that depends on what type of stand you're in. If you're in a transitional stand a little bit off the field, I've had really good luck with deer coming both ways. Once out of curiosity, coming from bed to look out in the field and others coming out of the field back into security cover. And if you're just off of it, it's a pretty good situation. If you're right on the edge of the field, you, you're, you're asking for a lot of luck to go your way to, to succeed in that situation. So I'm probably going to you know, I, I may stick it out depending on how late they start, but if it's early in the afternoon and I can go get into another stand, I'm probably going to do that. Okay. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So... On hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. 
and use promo code Meat Eater. That's promo code Meat Eater at UrgentCareKit.com slash Meat Eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm hoping this next scenario won't be what you're dealing with, but it could it could happen. It's late October. It's October 28th. 29th, 30th, somewhere in that ballpark. And this mega giant you've got in Iowa, you still have not gotten any daylight pictures from him. He's not gone daylight. You haven't seen him. But you know he's still alive and he's still around, just not moving in daylight where you have your cameras or where you've been hunting. The rut is approaching very quickly. Any day now is going to break loose. And there's this. there's always this risk that once the rut hits, these bucks just go willy-nilly all over the place, and they become much more difficult to pattern. They could get killed by the neighbors, etc. Some people would worry about those kinds of things. So in that situation, how would you proceed? Would you change up things dramatically to try to get your last stab at him pre-rut, or would you just wait until he finally does get going or the rut gets going? Uh, what would you do? You know, I love those last four days of October. 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, five days, I guess, really 27 through 31. I mean, that's, that's the time. So I'm just going to assume that that phase is going to kick in and I'm going to keep hunting my, my plan. The one that I set forth early in the year, based on where I think I can intercept this guy, I'm still going to make sure I've got good access in and out. I'm going to hunt the weather the best I can. And I'm going to hunt more and more as I approach the latter part of October, because in an instant, it can all change. You know, you're only looking for that five-minute period where he daylights for you. And the later in October you get, the greater your odds are that it's about to happen. So, yeah, I, I get excited in and around late October, especially if he hasn't daylighted because he's about to. You know, if you know you're on him and he's in the area and he hasn't daylighted yet, he's about to. So keep after him. Is there any kind of location, and I'm assuming – you know, late October, those evening sits, it's, it's food related, of course. Um, how would a food related evening hunt in late October be different than a food related hunt in early October? Is it, is the same, is that same great green food source? Have you shifted to one that's even closer to the bedding area now or something, or, uh, is it just so dependent on Intel? Generally all of our um, green sources are pretty close to the bedroom. So that almost wipes that scenario out because what's happening in early October is often happening in late October. However, I might shift a little bit to a place that has a few more does to add to that overall appeal. 
because that's all of a sudden the order of the day is not necessarily clover, but rather the does that are on the clover. And you can see their demeanor switch, especially old mature deer. Uh, we do a, a phase that's called pre-lock right there. And that is one of the best times, late October, to kill an absolute mega giant, really mature buck. And more often than not, we're doing it on a food source, whether that be a green field of an afternoon or evening, or perhaps if it's the first north wind of a cold front, we might be on an acorn flat or somewhere in a bedroom where they're coming in to browse of a morning. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's the, those are the days we live for, right? Late October yeah. on a green source with a cold front. I mean, especially this year, look out. I mean, that rising moon is hitting late October everybody get ready because it's going to be in October to remember if we have decent weather. It is going to be unbelievable. There are going to be some mega giants killed, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. They're going to be incredible this year. Now, how would you set up on a little food source, or I don't know if it's little or big, but you've got a food source that's tight to that bedding area. How would you typically, and how do you typically set up your blinds or tree stands in relation to that with wind direction. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, would you sit right on the edge of the bedding area with a wind blowing out of it into the field? Or would you hunt on the opposite side of the field and hope those deer would come out and cross it? How do you typically try to be set up there so that the wind's in your favor and, and or possibly in the deer's favor in some way so that they'll come out to that area? You know, that varies based on the, the plot and the deer for that matter. Um, oftentimes our stand positions are based on historical deer movement within that piece of topography or on that food plot. So we've already watched it either with a, a trail camera that's on time elapse or through our own observations through the years. And then we position our blind where we have probably a 90 degree wind coming off of the field into our face and then somewhere safe and the deer are crossing perpendicular to that, going past us out to another food source, if you will. Um, that's the ideal scenario in, in, in my estimation, but that only comes through, you know, lots of observation. And I, we just, Wade and I were just talking about this. We've got a new um, food plot that we carved out this spring on a new lease, and We've got a, a really nice buck on, on this particular piece. Very pleased to see the quality of deer that we got on cameras on this new lease. And we're going to position two reconnaissance cameras now on this bean field that we carved in in uh, 90 degrees to each other so that we can get a, a true time lapse of the entire field. And then we're going to watch where these deer are entering the field. We have an assumption of where they're coming and going from, but we don't know for sure. So we're going to let Reconyx prove it to us on this bean field and watch the deer flow for the next month and a half. And, um, and then, you know, we'll have a better idea of where to watch and where to anticipate the deer movement once we're sitting there hunting it. Hmm. Now, I, I can't remember in our past conversations if I've ever asked you about how you think these deer use the wind to determine where they go feed. Do you think they typically have got like, hey, these bucks are going to want to go and hit this food source regardless of wind? Or do you think that on on Monday, it's more likely the buck's going to go to that bean field because of the northwest wind. But on Tuesday, it switches out to an east wind. So he's probably going to go to the cornfield on the other side. Have you seen either one of those scenarios? I, I do see those scenarios unfold. And I, I personally think it's where the wind forced him to bed as opposed to 
him trying to use the wind to his advantage. Of course they do that because they're, they're, they live by their nose. But what I notice most about bed switching is when the wind switches or the speed switches, the bedroom switches. And therefore, their entry into the field will differ based on wind direction and speed. Gotcha. Now, can you, just for folks that haven't heard you talk about this in the past, can you talk about how you see that wind direction impacting where they bed? Are they bedding, you know, I've heard, I often think that they're going to bed somewhere with the wind to their back and then watching out front. Um, Can you elaborate on your thoughts there? And again, it varies based on topography, whether you're talking about a ridge or a bottom area. It varies based on situation by situation. So the only way you kind of learn that is by sitting there uh, on different conditions and finding out how it affected them or perhaps noting the conditions and then also looking at how they approach the field in your time elapses that you're doing or your food plots. Time elapses on food plots will tell you a whole a whole bunch about access to and from not only the deers, but also where you could be safe coming and going. They'll also tell you whether wind direction and speed will change where they're bedding and where they're coming out at. What I find is that the stronger the wind, the lower in the topography that they bed and then feed out that evening. And then lighter wind days, sometimes they're down low, sometimes they're up high, they'll bed wherever they want to on lighter wind days. But one thing's for sure, when that wind's really, really high, oftentimes it puts them lower in topography to get protection from that wind. Interesting. Interesting. Um, all right. Let's we had a scenario like that last fall. Um, Wade was up in, in Alberta, and Kyle, his wife, was up to bat. She was hunting, and Coondog and I were going to film her that night. And we had 30-mile-an-hour winds out of the northwest. And the pictures the previous seven days said we needed to be over on this ridgetop field. And I, I told Kyle, I was like, I know you want to go there, but my gut tells me we really, really need to be down in this bottom field based on these wind speeds. So we decided to head down into this deep bottom. It was good for a northwest wind. And we probably saw 40 deer that night. And previous to that, the most that had been on that field based on the camera surveys or anyone sitting there was 10 to 15. But that wind literally had everything down in that valley and everything coming through. And, and she ended up taking a beautiful, big, giant, wide, five-and-a-half-year-old eight-point. It worked out great. And I eventually went and checked the camera that night of the, of the ridgetop field, and it, it sucked. Nothing was out there that <laughs> night. So it's, it's amazing how you can interpret what they might do based on wind speed and, and wind direction. It's one of those things I've learned through the years. When it's really windy, just don't don't go sit a ridge. It's generally not, particularly if it's a northwest wind. Southerly winds, it's not quite as bad. They're not quite as threatened. But a big cold front blowing in with heavy wind speed, they seem to go down on those days. What's What has to be heavy enough to make that impact? Are we talking like 15 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour? What's that? I would say. I'd say 20 or 25 plus is where it starts. You know, when it starts getting uncomfortable to you, it's uncomfortable to them as well. You know, like if you're standing there, it's like, wow, this is really, this feels worse than I thought it was going to. But I find that range somewhere like 20, 25 plus. You start gusting 30 and 40, man, you better get low. Yeah. Do you ever have challenges getting in those low spots though and having swirling winds when you're down in the valley and that heavy winds coming over top and doing funky things? Is that something you struggle with at all or? Do you have a plan for that? 
Oh, absolutely. But I knew this area was safe because I'd hunted it on the same conditions before and wind scouted it and knew what it, what it did down there. Of course, you're going to have those situations. If it's real heavy and it's curling back, you're not going to kill one anyway. So don't, don't sit there. So I knew this particular spot was safe. When you say wind scout, what would you say the, the average person should or could do when it comes to trying to understand something like that? Uh, are you saying simply like you've hunted there in the past and you've taken note of how wind affects it? Or do you actually go in there in the off season or other parts of the year and somehow specifically look and see, okay, today's got this wind. I'm going to see what the milkweed does today here or something like that. Yeah, both in answer to your question. So I'm learning it as I'm hunting them. And that's probably what most people are going to do and learn areas when it's bad. You're like, you note it. Uh oh, this speed was, you know, I was in there on a 15 to 18 and it was curling back. However, on a eight to 12, it was fine. And you note that, or maybe in your notes or your mind, you understand that. Now, you can also do that when you're not hunting. But you have to pay attention whether there's leaves on the trees or not. So you'd want to scout that, you know, perhaps in March before the leaves come out on a variety of different wind speeds at in the evening. So you match the thermals in with it and see what it's what it's all doing together. And then you also want to do that, you know, this time of the year, July, August, go check what that wind speed's doing because it's it's going to curl back. Uh, it's interesting. We were uh, putting some cameras out the other day. And uh, we'd all split up, put cameras out in different positions. And Austin was overworking on one part of the farm and he went in there to check a camera farm. And he goes, he goes, that, that field looks like, and this is on the new farm near lease. He said, that field looks like it should be a Northwest. He goes, that wind was really curling back on me today on a, on a West Northwest and going right back into the bedroom. And he goes, I got out of there quickly. And I said, man, I appreciate that. And I immediately told Wade and told Perry, I was like, we got to go in there on a North Northwest and a Northwest under the same conditions and find out what those winds are doing because the west-northwest isn't going to work there. Hmm. That's a great point, and that's something that requires a different flip to be switched to just be trying to pay attention to something that even when you're not hunting but could really pay off, obviously. That's, uh, that's oh, a good yeah. thing to be reminded of. Some of that's instinctual. Austin's a tremendous hunter, a tremendous guide. He's been guiding since he was a, a teen, you know, uh, but he also knows – how, how anal I am over the wind speeds and wind directions on every spot. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And you and I've talked about it, I think two or three different times. And I really don't hear a lot of people talking about wind scouting and wind speed and direction, but it's, it can make or break your whole season, you know, yeah. by knowing exactly what a wind direction and speed does on every spot. I mean, that's, that's, that's big time, man, making sure that you got a safe wind to go in there. But if you're curling and swirling around, forget it. I mean, you're not, you're not going to fool them. Yeah. Now I know that you do a lot when it comes to scent control, right? You're utilizing various Absolutely. ozone methods yep. and you're following a very careful process, but you're saying even with all those things, we still have got to pay extreme attention to even that kind of situation, right? You've got, you've got to, and yeah. why you see me in a blind so often anymore. Um, we scent crush everything down on an everyday basis, cameras, bows, ourselves clothing take a shower get out there you also see us hunt with the windows closed more often than not so that if you do get those swat slight twists and turns i want that added protection of a muddy bull or a muddy penthouse holding my scent in versus sitting in a tree stand and and letting it curl out over the over the field 
I've got certain tree stands that work on a variety of different wind speeds, but if I'm down in an area and it's curling around at all, or I'm on a ridge and it's curling back over, over the treetops, I want some added protection in addition to my scent crusher or ozone application. And for me, that's a blind with the windows closed. Yeah. Yeah. That, make, that makes sense. All right. We, I think, need to shift to a little more rapid fire. I keep on asking you all these follow-up questions, and I'm sinking our time down the drain, and we're running out of it. So I'm going to try to run us through a bunch of things relatively quickly so we can cover as much ground as possible um, in this last, like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes before I've got to shut it down. Um, So we're just going to run through it, Mark. It's November 1st, 2nd. We're into the rut. That chaos is ensuing now, but you're still after this target deer we keep on referring back to. Once that calendar switches, are you still trying to pattern him based off that historical intel and and that kind of thing? Or are you going to switch to your basic rut locations when it's a single target deer still, but chaos is ensuing? What's, what's that first week of November look for you now? I'm still right on his tail. I still think until they actually get with an estrus doe, which oftentimes occurs after the seeking phase or the buck parade, like seventh, eighth, and ninth, until that occurs, I'm right on his home core, at least my interpretation of what his home core is. I'm staying right on his tail all the way up through about the ninth or 10th of November. Then I might start switching a little bit. Okay. And then at that point, it's just generic doe bedding areas, funnels, whatever it might be that we're hunting the does then probably, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Just once they lock down, man, it's as much, uh, as much luck as anything, you know, you still got to hunt, you got to hunt, hunt longer, hunt the bedding areas. And, you know, I, we always say they're in stupid spots, right? You catch them out in the middle of a field at that noon or it's crazy where they go once they start chasing and get off of their patterns. You know, they're very patternable up through about the 10th or 11th. And then all of a sudden you throw all the patterns out the window. So I always say it's expectation up through about the 10th and then it's hope after the 10th. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Um, how about this one right in that same window, maybe November 5th? It's supposed to be great time of year, right? It's it's the deer parade or whatever we're calling it right in that window where good things should be happening, but you've got lousy conditions. We've got that dreaded November heat wave that pushes through. How would you hunt on November 5th on a cruddy warm day differently than you would on a great cold front day? You know, it, it depends what just occurred or what's about to occur. If the conditions get warm and stay warm, I'm going to hunt through them and do the best I can. If, however, it's an isolated day or two that's warm, I may actually sit those out, give myself a break, give the deer a break, and jump back in there once the weather turns in my favor again. So it really depends on what the rest of the forecast looks like. However, if it's just crappy and stays crappy, I'm I'm going to hunt through it. Okay. Well. Because you've got the other influencer, which is the rut occurring, right? It only comes once you know, and granted, you're probably not going to see as great activity. You're not going to see as much, but you might, you know, there's always that fight when it comes to hunting the rut, it might happen today. And I, I never, never overlooked that, that aspect of it. Yeah. Anything's possible. Anytime. Anytime it can be, you know, so you, you can't kill them if you're not hunting. However, if it's an isolated day, I might take a little break, you know? 
I've, I've started to, I, I used to think that I had to be out there every single day, every single hour. And if I didn't, I really hated myself for it. But I'm, I'm starting to get to the point where, you know, it might be okay to take that day for a little bit of mental health or family health. Uh, and, and you're probably better for it the rest of your time after that, you know? You really are because it sharpens you back up, right? Too, yeah. You know, you can go, you hunt seven, eight, nine days in a row. You start to wear down just a little bit. You get a little mental fatigued and, you know, maybe that day is taken to check some cameras or uh, do some other activities, shoot your bow again, get back in shape and give yourself a break from the hunt so that when you go back hunting, you're sharp again and, and that energy level still is high. You, you never want to let yourself wear out especially during the rut. It's one of the tactics we talk about, especially in middle of November is stay sharp, stay focused. And, you know, you look at it and you go, well, it's not that hard to be focused. Well, go sit there 10 yeah. straight days in a row. It's easy to wear yourself out and fatigue too much yeah. of any one thing too much. So never be afraid on those poor days as it putting our bad days, putting it in deer cast terms to take a little break and, and give the deer break as well. Yeah. Cause you're, you're probably this a whole heck of a lot in all honesty. And, you know, I've sat through enough, poor predictive days and bad predictive days it's generally not that far off it's like you know what what are you going to miss if they're not moving anyway yeah you know? now now speaking of though the unpredictability of things anything can sometimes happen so let's let's uh move to november 10th it's november 10th and you are hunting and a big buck comes through following a doe he is obviously locked onto her and they settle in about 100 yards away from you in some thick cover, but you can see them, and they're just hanging out. He's just kind of pushing around. They're just standing. Um, in that scenario, will you just wait him out, or do you try to somehow attract him away from the doe? Um, and what if this goes on for hours? If it's is, this, is your answer to this question different if it's a half hour versus six hours? I generally have a tendency that if it's a target buck and I've got my eyes on him and he's locked on a doe, I'm going to stay exactly where I'm at and I won't take my eye off of him. I'm not going to try and get down. I'm not going to try and go closer unless by chance it was a really gusty, gaily wind to where I felt like I could get by with the movement from a visual and, and audible standpoint. I might make a move on him, try and get a little bit closer if I can, you know, go over there and call a little bit. Because if, if he's 100 yards and you try to call to him, chances are he's, he's not going to come to you. However, if you can get close to him and call, he might. If he gets, if he gets really edgy because other bucks are approaching a hot doe, when you're close, you mean one thing. When you're distance, you don't mean a whole heck of a lot to him. And I, I've seen that work. But you got to be able to get there. You got to be able to have a shot once he comes in. And it's it's not an overly likely scenario that you're going to succeed in that. Sounds exciting though. <laughs> That'd be a hell of a hunt. Oh, it's exciting, right? It's exciting. But you're you're you know, I've also seen situations where buckets on a doe. And three days later, he's still in that little home core and he's still on the same doe. So that's the other way to look at it is, okay, he's locked down now. I not only have today, I've probably got the next few days to, to dance around this scenario here. And I'm going to continue to see these two deer. Yeah. Okay. Well, how close do you think you need to get in that case for the call to work? In that scenario you laid out there, are you talking like 40 within, yards close within, or? Yeah, within within 60, within 50, something like that. You got to have the cover and the topography to do it. Yeah. Like I said, it's not an overly likely scenario, but it could work. It really could. Watch him. Watch a deer that's better with a doe. Watch other little bucks approach. He won't He won't go get rid of them until the, the bucks literally right on top of them are a threat. 
Yeah. But if you go do a fight really close, get ready because he's liable to about run you over, man. He does not like other bucks getting close to his hot bell. So the situation's got to be right. The weather's got to be right. The wind's got to be right. You can succeed. It's just not a high likelihood of success. Yeah. Here's a, a, a opposite scenario from that. That's that's an exciting, fun scenario in November. What about a not-so-fun scenario, which is you're hunting at that same time period and you get picked off by a buck. You get busted by a buck in the stand. Um, maybe he sees you. Maybe it's a see and a smell. Uh, but one way or another, there's a mature buck within shooting range, and he busts you before you can get a shot. How long is that spot toast? Or, or because of the rut, do you not worry, and you're going to go right back in there you know, the next day or two because another buck might come through that you want to get a shot at? Um, that's part A. And then part B is... Tell me how your answer is different if I asked you this in October versus November. Well, you're back to the margaritas at the Mexican restaurant, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate getting busted, but if it's October, that's one scenario. Uh, chances are you might have just messed your whole season up if they catch you in October. I don't like getting caught in October because they're – they're not going very far from their bed. They're, they're feeding in the same general area. And if they catch you within that home range, chances are you could put him nocturnal or you could put him out of there altogether. Uh, in November, not quite as bad. They have uh, a much shorter memory in November than they do in October, uh, especially once they're all riled up and chasing does. And I mean, they're just, their demeanor is just so different in November than it is October. So, you know, in October, I'm probably going to stay out of there for a little while and, you know, let my cameras kind of dictate when I should go back in there. I'm going to assume that I, I've, I've mucked it up pretty bad. Right. And I'm going to stay out of there until he proves to me that I should go back in there and hunt him again, that I didn't muck it up as bad as I thought I did in November. I'm probably going in back in the, that afternoon or the next day because any hot doe could walk in front of that buck and he can literally follow her right back down the same trail that he caught you on so two different demeanors there and, and two different outcomes i think yeah well y you mentioned how you'd let your trail cameras help you in that scenario what would you do if you had to hunt without trail cameras for a year like what would be the most notable difference in how you'd approach this season be um I'm curious how your scout, how you would scout different, or if you would simply hunt differently because of that lack of intel. Um, what would be some of your first things you can think of that you would have to do differently with zero cameras? Uh, you know, then it, it's back to probably scouting a little bit more visually uh, from a distance, looking for deer, looking for patterns, those types of things. I'm also, what I used to key in on before we had trail cameras, it wasn't rubs or scrapes. It was either the visual uh, confirmation that a buck was there, but I always scouted for tracks. And if there wasn't a big giant track in the area, I just wouldn't hunt there. If I could find that big track by scouting, I was always used to walk the creek bottoms, you know, those ditches in the Midwest that you get that lay out that sandy soil. And I, I'd walk and walk and walk till I cut a big track. And then I knew I was somewhere in that deer's home range. And I, I would hunt that way based off either seeing them or finding big tracks. Big tracks don't lie. Yeah. Uh, they never have and they never will. You know, <laughs> young deer just don't have a big foot. And for you, what do you consider a big track? 
Well, I've never really measured one. I mean, I know what it looks like. <laughs> generally, the size of my, you know, it's generally the size of my hand, you know, yeah. from tip to dew claw. Um, but you know, as you know, you know what a doe track looks like and what a, a young buck truck track looks like. And then when you see that big fat track sunk down in the mud and, and clearly an imprint, I mean, you just, you just know, Hey, this is a big mature buck right here. So I, but we killed a lot of big deer based on just finding their tracks back in the day, you know, before trail cameras. I mean, that's how we were killing. Right. And I think a lot of people probably could, you know, improve some of their hunting by getting some of that into their repertoire probably still today. No question. I mean, I, I think we can depend a little bit too much on trail cameras at times. And I still, I'm looking at the ground when I'm out in the woods, I'm looking down. I'm generally not looking up. I'm looking for tracks because it's the way we, you know, started, uh, hunting even during Turkey season. If I see a big buck track in an area, I never forget it. You know, and Wade's the same way. We're constantly looking for big tracks. Hmm. All right, let's go back to our season chasing your also, mega. Uh, oh, yeah. I talked about I talked about the creeks. I would also walk the edges of uh, of tillable farms. You know, like big corn fields, big bean fields. I'd walk the edges, look at every entry and exit trail, and look in and in and around the rows on around the outer edge, and you'd find big tracks that way too. Because oftentimes, you know, those tillable fields will have mud a little bit longer than anywhere else. And uh, you can find some big tracks coming and going out of, out of big tillable fields. Yeah, I've seen that too. Uh, I was going to say, let's hop back to our 2020 hypothetical season. And we're still after this great big buck. We weren't able to capitalize in October. A lot of the rut has passed by. And I'm not sure what the opening day of firearm season is in Iowa, but let's say it's the day before the opener. For me here in Michigan, the day before the opening day gun season is like my last hurrah because there's a significant chance he could get killed on opening day because so many more hunters come out there. So I always look at that last day as like a swing for the fences kind of day. What's that look like for you on the day before gun season? Well, in Iowa, that's generally sometime the first week of December. So the rut's already come and gone and we've, we've got to hunt the full rut picture. So I'm generally off of him and waiting for food source movement in Iowa. In Missouri, which I think is closer to the scenario you're painting, it generally happens sometime in mid-November, 12th, 15th, 16th, 14th, yep. somewhere in there. So yeah, I'm going to hunt hard all the way up up until that point. I'm going to do all day sits if the weather you know is permitting and I'm going to you know, it's, it's that time of the year where I'm in their bedroom and trying to find something uh, on a doe somewhere. It's a tougher time of the year, not just because rifle season's approaching, but because they're all doed up, especially in Missouri. Our, our buck to doe ratio is in pretty rough shape, uh, meaning there's a lot of does and, and not as many bucks for them. So uh, we're trying to work on that and get it closer to one to one. But uh, I'm going to be somewhere in a bedroom hunting all day, more than likely. Okay. All right, Mark. I. I wish that we could keep doing this because I've got a whole bunch of other random ones I thought I could throw at you, but I'm going to miss my dinner with the kids and my wife wouldn't be happy about that. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to wrap this up with one last question. Here's the, here's the situation. I am hypothetically all powerful and I control your hunting privileges and I'm going to take away your privileges for the next 10 years. You cannot hunt deer at all for the next 10 years unless unless you kill a five-and-a-half-year-old buck this year. But I'm only going to give you one day to do it, 
and you have one single stand location that you have to hunt that whole day. I'd like you to tell me what day you're going to choose and describe this single best stand that you can think of in as much detail as possible for this very, very high stakes hunt. Mm, that's a tough one. I'd probably pick November the 8th and I would be somewhere in a rut funnel uh, that historically has been quite good to me in the past. Um, so I'm going to be somewhere in cover. I'm going to get in there an hour before daylight and I'm going to sit, you know, until after the sun sets, hopefully killing a deer. But I, I, if I had to gamble on one day, I would gamble on November the 8th if I had to pick it right now. And I'm going to be somewhere in, in fairly heavy security cover. Can you describe your ideal heavy security cover funnel in a little bit more detail? Is this like typically a timber kind of funnel or do you really like a brushy draw? Um, just paint that picture a little more if you can. Oh, a brushy draw where I can see quite a ways and, and be able to manipulate a deer coming to me through a call. So, you know, I, I want to be somewhere where I can see as well, because you, you, if you're trying to kill a five-year-old, you want the ability to call to that deer just in case he's not doed up just yet. So I'm somewhere in heavy security that I can still see, if that makes sense. It does. It does. It sounds like a good spot. Would it be on one of your Iowa farms or your Missouri farms? Um, it'd be in Iowa, certainly. Yeah, for sure. It would be in Iowa and it's going to be somewhere, somewhere really good that historically I've, I've had great luck in. For okay. sure. And I'm gonna, I'm just going to keep on adding a little more here. Let's say you can either have a grunt tube or rattling antlers, but not both. Which one are you choosing? Antlers. Bring antlers. the antlers. Okay. Yeah, because they're louder, you know, you just get a little bit further with them and I can grunt with my mouth if I have to. Okay, that's a great point. All right, um, I think that's I think that's gonna do it, Mark. You passed the gauntlet. Um, we now know what Mark <laughs> Drew would do. <laughs> I don't know if I passed or not, but we we did our best that we could. Hopefully, we didn't bore anybody to tears through I that. Don't think but I'm, so. I really I've, I've never done that before. That was enjoyable. I appreciate you running me through it. Ah, hey, you know it's kind of fun for me just to think through these different types of uh, situations to see how people would approach them, and I sometimes try to throw in situations I'm dealing with so I can selfishly get something out of it too. In that regard, so you helped me out on a couple things there, Mark. <laughs> and uh, hey, what? Why not? Yeah, why not? Um, For folks that want to follow along with all the cool stuff you guys have got going, do you want to mention a few highlights of what people should do in the coming weeks and months to uh, see what you got going? Absolutely. We talked a little bit about DeerCast, and our our app continues to grow, and we continue to add features to it this year. Um, You know, there's DeerCast Track, DeerCast Custom. We're going to have an advanced social platform within the app this particular, this coming fall that's going to be fun for everybody to get in there and enjoy. And uh, check it out at DeerCast.com. Or you can go to uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Check it out at at Drury Outdoors, and you'll find us on any of those three, including YouTube. And check out all the content we've got, whether it be at DeerCast or any of those social platforms. I mean, we are loaded for bear with, with, uh, content this year, probably more than we've ever had. It's, it's really, you know, I never dreamed when we first started this, that we would ever see a day where we're touching the amount of eyeballs or ears in this case, as we do right now, but it's, it's a fun time. 
in our space. And it's, it's fun to try and be in that, that lane where we educate because we're always trying to help other people become better hunters. That's one of the reasons we did deer cast and it's uh, been very well received across the, the hunting nation out there. So we're, we appreciate anybody that's ever downloaded it. And you ha- if you haven't, give it a look and give it a try. There's a free version, a version for 10 bucks a year and a version for 20 bucks a year. And they're, they're loaded, loaded with lots of features. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just, personally attest to it as well it's it's a lot of really cool stuff and i'm certainly enjoying it and i'll tell you what mark i'll be logging on there on november 8th to see if you uh tag that buck <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not gonna actually do only hunt one day this year, but... <laughs> i told us your only day <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to have that deer dead in the month of october to be honest with you he's daylighted a few times so i think the opportunity could be there if he's if he's still alive and still around and something hasn't has goofed goofed us up i i think we got a shot at him in october i really do really i hope it happens for you mark and, and history would point to that deer being in serious trouble based off your track record so uh good luck out there i appreciate it good luck to you man i appreciate the time hey thanks mark and that's a wrap thank you all for listening hope you enjoyed this one i definitely got a lot from it Uh, Best of luck to all of you guys if you're out there scouting or preparing for the upcoming season or maybe you're listening to this during the season and you're out there hunting. If that's the case, good luck, shoot straight, have fun, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.